You're listening to the Haney Company Financial Guy Show. No nonsense, just a crazy mix of life, business, the funny, and of course we're going to talk about your money. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride. What could go wrong? Welcome to another episode of the Haney Company Financial Guy Podcast. I am super thrilled to be here with Dan Juan Street of Wells Fargo Advisors today, talking about a topic that is truly near and dear to my heart, personally and professionally, and something I think that we share a passion for. So thanks for joining me this morning, Dan. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Brian. Pleasure to be here. As, as I know in our prep, most people really find the first four questions to be the absolute Mount Everest of, of experiences. They are very hard and challenging. So I figure we get them out of the way and then the rest of our time is easier. So let's just, let's just take Fire it away. at a time. Awesome. If you could have one superpower, what superpower would you want to have? Brian, you know, I think I've got a great answer for this. There's, you know, there's, a lot of people know the show Friday Night Lights, uh, Coach Taylor. The guy yes. who played Coach Taylor, I think his name's Kyle Chandler. He was on a show like the early 2000s called Early Edition. And I don't even think I ever saw the show, but the whole premise was he got the morning paper a day early. So he would know in advance what was going to happen the next day. I'm not sure. I, that might be bending the rules on superpower, but I would want to have that power that he had in that show to get the morning paper a day early, you know, both from... Obviously, in the industry we're in, there would be some advantages to that. There's yeah. also altruistic things you could do from that. And I think, um, I, you know, overall, I think that would be a big benefit. And I, I don't know how much latitude you have to get it a week early or a month early, but just a day early, I think that would be pretty okay with me. I like that. I, I vaguely recall that show that you mentioned. Yeah. So it didn't last long. So there's not, I don't, think, I don't even think I ever saw it, but the premise seemed interesting. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And and I, I, I certainly appreciate, you know, the framework of peering into the future just a little bit, um, yeah. but not too much, you know, not being able to see maybe at all. That's uh, all right. That's a good one. I'm, I'm, I may have to steal that one. So, all right. Would you rather explore outer space or the bottom of the ocean? This one's really easy, I think. It's outer space because, you know, the technology exists today to explore the bottom of the ocean, I think, or at least, you know, send drones down there and stuff. And there's a couple thousand miles of bottom of ocean to explore. And maybe you explore a new, you know, discover a new fish or two, but the ability to explore outer space is limitless, you know, trillions and trillions of miles and stars and all that. And I think you know, a lot of people have been in the ocean. Not a lot of people have been in space. So I think from an experience standpoint, I think space is the easy answer. All right. I like it. And I like the confident way that you framed it. It's <laughs> it's very, I, to me, neither are super appealing because I've seen all of those wonderful movies. I don't like sharks. And I've also seen the movies where they, you know, float away into space and that's like it. And both yeah. of those scenarios are somewhat terrifying. So neither are ideal. Yeah. But uh, I guess I guess any kind of exploration should not be without risks. So, okay, sure. I like that. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year and enjoy it, no cost of, of living to, to concern yourself with, where would you want to live? That's a tough one because, you know, the easy answer would be some sort of beach or something. But uh, 
from per, I almost out of college, I was very close to moving to London for, I wanted to go for like a year or two and I didn't end up doing it. And I've always sort of regretted it. So just personally, I would have wish I would have lived overseas, could have traveled around Europe, at, you know, using London as my home base for that year. I regret not doing it. So I'll just say London in the UK. I like it. I also like the way that you frame that as well, because you're right. It's it's one of these things where, I mean, I even wrote like a short uh, ebook about retirement and, you know, that kind of the demystification of the permanent vacation, right? Where, yeah. you know, the reason why we enjoy going to vacation places is because it's, it's novel. that. Yeah, right. It's novel. Yeah. So I, I, I know I, I totally like that. And I think I agree with that because I've, I think about this quite a bit and, you know, the whole thing, it, it changes when you say an entire year, you got to think about all the things you would want to be able to be engaged with for a, for a period of time. And uh, I, I know for myself, it definitely would probably rule certain tropical dynamics out because there's just, I don't know, I also appreciate seasons and just kind of different environmental components. So culture, like everything, yeah. vacation. I love the beach for a week. In fact, you know, as we just talked before we started, I'm, I'm heading to Mexico tomorrow. But for a year, I want, you know, a little bit of variety. Yeah. And I would need to have some kind of sports and athletics for me. Absolutely. I just, I can't, not just watching it on TV. I'd have to be able to go somewhere and do something. So, all right. Last but not least, besides this one, of course, what <laughs> podcast do you listen to that you would want to recommend to somebody else? He, that is the that's the only real tough one for me. You know, you mentioned sports and athletics. I'd like to tell you, you know, some incredibly insightful current events podcast or, you know, I'm a big fan of history, but my professional background is writing and talking about the financial markets. And I almost enjoy listening to podcasts where I don't have to think about what's going on in the world. Um, and so I like the sports podcasts. Uh, I like Pardon My Take. That's a you know, mainly a football podcast. And then Men in Blazers is a podcast about soccer that I really like. I really enjoy as I've come to like soccer over the past few years. Outstanding. No, I, 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 I had not heard of the second one. I've certainly heard of the first one. And uh -huh. as a, I, I, I grew up, soccer was my, my number one sport growing up into high school. And then lacrosse kind of took over in high school and into college. And now it still lingers around, but, um, yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because I kind of fell away from soccer for a little bit. And now I'm kind of coming back to that, you know, joy and love of that. So I'll have to let's see about checking that one out as well. I, I For me, I wish I could probably do more podcasts. I can actually listen to them. You know, I, for somebody who runs a show, I admit I don't I don't consume that many podcasts. You know, I just I, it's one of those things I wish I had more bandwidth for. But uh, I always like to take the, uh, the guest recommendations and, and check a bunch of stuff out. So look forward to listening to that one. I'm sure it's fun. There's so many options now, but um, I, I, when I'm working out, when I'm driving, when I'm traveling, like any kind of any, whenever I have free time now, I try to put on podcasts and at least, you know, get a little more information. I, the sports ones are just a good, you know, an escape, especially with the news we have today. It's just, you know, sometimes it's good to, uh, take the focus away from current events and work related items and, you know, just kind of relax. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I think, I think I'm going to try to, at some point, make the switch away from music, listening to podcast consuming when I'm exercising. So we'll see how that goes. Best of luck, Brian. Best of luck. <laughs> I know. 
So let's now let's let's talk about what you do because you are a specialist uh, in in kind of the the area of investing that we're going to talk about with ESG, socially responsible. But but give a, give the audience the framework. You know, how did you come to this place, and and what do you do? What's your nine to five like, uh, and what do you like most about what you do? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm the director of ESG strategy at the Wells Fargo Investment Institute, which supports all of the Wells Fargo wealth and investment management business. And, you know, my background was writing and talking about the financial markets um, and what we called in the back in the day, the market advice team. So I would write a weekly market commentary. Um, I would host a daily market call for our financial advisors every morning. And part of that job was basically reading the financial press each morning and the newspaper, like, consuming knowledge and being able to tell clients and financial advisors in 20 minutes what's important going on in the world to them. How, if you're managing money, if you're dealing with clients, if you're operating within the financial markets, what do you need to know? And it's interesting because you know, doing that job for as long as I did, and back in 2014 or 2015, these ideas of ESG or sustainable investing or SRI were really on the periphery, right? It's this kind of thing you might see on page C6 of the Wall Street Journal, but not page A1. And by 2018, you start seeing more and more momentum, right? Client demand is rising. Social issues start becoming a little more ingrained in everyday society. And of course, that kind of permeates to the financial markets. And as I'm seeing how much strength this is gathering, I'm also noticing that the desk I work on is getting more questions from clients. And... So I started just kind of moonlighting basically while I was doing a market job and helping our advisors find solutions, whether that's products, advice, guidance, research in this space. And as we saw this just kind of exponential shift in interest and demand, it became more and more of my job. And around 2019, it kind of became my full-time job. And my real focus, because we have great people who develop products and who manage portfolios. We have great people who, you know, do research on individual companies and people who guide clients' financial assets. In this space, one of the things you'll notice or, or we're hearing about a lot is there's a lot of client demand, right? To, to in some way, to integrate their values to, to what they care about, their principles into their financial portfolio. But Getting from demand to satisfaction, fully invested in the right things that they believe in or not invested in the things they don't, there's a lot of roadblocks in between, a lot of confusing acronyms, a lot of misinformation, so many new products. You know, this product universe has quadrupled over the past, what, five years. And my real goal is to get from a technology standpoint, from a client experience standpoint, from an ease of investing standpoint to get us to the place where we can more scalable match client values to the way they're invested. I love it. You definitely had a good lead into a lot of we want to kind of start to get into. And, and that is, I think the first thing is terminology is challenging because, you know, we like several industries love our acronyms, but which are know, subject to change. Right. Yeah. And, and now in the world of, of emojis and all the ways that we abbreviate things, I think it's just all, it's a lot to keep track of. 
I know we're going to kind of get into the landscape more, but let's start by level setting on terminology and let's define, I think, two of the most important acronyms that fit in this space. The first one being ESG and the other one being SRI. ESG is a much simpler one to define because in this growing space, which some people call values, you know, you'll see if you go to different websites, clients for financial services, they'll see it called a lot of different things, sustainable investing, investing with impact, you know, responsible, socially responsible. There's a lot of acronyms. The one that really means something is ESG. Mm -hmm. And what that basically means is you are looking at financially or materially relevant environmental, social, and governance issues. And what is the risk to this investment? either a product or an individual company or an industry, what is the risk that that company has to environmental issues, to social issues, to different governance factors? And for me, it's first and foremost about almost risk mitigation to sort of the way the world is changing. And, you know, because I think a lot of people are surprised when they hear ESG, they assume that it has to do with sustainability, right? About climate change. But there are so many factors that go into ESG analysis. On the environmental side, obviously, there's a heavy focus on sustainability and you know, carbon footprints. In the social side, it's human capital, how do companies treat their workers, all the way down to data security, right? And I don't think that's intuitive. You'd think that that's part of it. From a governance standpoint, it's a lot of things that we've been doing in the investment world to help look out for for a long time. It's, you know, does a company have a staggered board? Are, do they have a diverse board? Do they file their reports on time? Are they not getting into any trouble, et cetera? And when you look at the kind of mosaic or confluence of all those factors, you have a pretty good idea of an exposure to risk and not the traditional financial risk, but the risk in the way the world is kind of taking some of these issues that aren't maybe strictly financial more seriously. And I think one real anecdote for ESG would be, you know, you look back 20, 30 years ago, back in the 70s, most of the value of the stock market was what we would call tangible value, i.e. things like assets, accounts receivable, property, capital, things like things that an accountant could put on a spreadsheet and put in an income statement. And only about 20% was intangible value, things like goodwill, brand, value, intellectual property, et cetera. And the biggest companies in the world were companies that make things, that make machinery, that pump oil, things like that. You look today, about 80% of the market value is intangible. So things like brand value, intellectual property, and goodwill really matter. And the biggest companies in the world, while they do make things, they also are very heavily internet and technology related. A lot of their value has to do with barriers to entry and search engines and things like that, applications, in a world where so much value and so much of the way we invest is investing towards intangible value, which is much, much harder to kind of handicap. I think ESG, not just from a personal value standpoint, but from an investing standpoint, makes a lot of sense because I think at its core, you're trying to assess risk for intangible value. It's a really long answer, Brian, but I think that's I think it's such a complicated and sometimes ambiguous idea for clients to understand. I think it's really important, especially for ESG, to sort of center on that. 
No, and and I and I so appreciate the way that you walked it through, and and because you're right, it with so much out there. Also, with I, with I think you coming from a kind of a, a journalistic background, me as well. There's a lot of very kind of quick hit ideas and notions. There's a lot of information that's coming through now, more mediums than ever before. And I think it's really great to see social and global interest and awareness in values-based alignment, both personally, professionally, corporately, societally. But then taking something like if I'm an individual investor or, or, or you know, a wealthy, affluent person who says, these are the things that are important to me, these are the things that I value, to your point, having then a matrix of, okay, well, what does that necessarily mean against investments? Or where do I align my capital, my money? I think it is really important for, for people to recognize that that is a very complex matrix to apply, but it is one that can be applied. And, and yeah. I think that, that's, that to me is an empowering shift because I think to your point, it, it's, it's not just about doing good to feel good. There's a lot of merit and, and rationale and quantifiable data behind why, you know, from a corporate standpoint, being a better business on paper in some of these measurable areas actually is better for your business. It's not just to look better. Especially in a world where people are more acutely aware of their social beliefs and the way they spend money and the way they interact online, the way they do almost every kind of aspect of life, they're starting to do it in the way they invest. And companies and the financial services industry has had to sort of take notice to that, right? And with so much momentum behind ESG specifically, especially in Europe, but it's really getting there in the United States. And I don't know, I'm hesitant to throw out a dollar amount, but so many pensions and institutions and non-for-profits and a lot of the biggest investment bases in the world are using these ESG strategies. And if you really want to kind of change the world, there's a lot of people would say, well, I'm not going to invest in this thing I don't like, right? Because to kind of broaden this out, this is really about the client's individual values. You know, if, if they have religious beliefs and certain companies produce items that go against, you know, we want to give them the option to exclude those. If they have certain beliefs societally that they want to kind of channel assets to, within reason, we want to do our best if we can. And there's, it's not always possible. This is still an evolving space. We want to do our best to sort of help them with that. I think the thing about ESG that is so compelling is with so much money following that type of strategy, if you're a CEO or a board or a management team for a company, you have to take notice and you have to think about how are these ESG ratings agencies or these ESG product portfolio managers, how are they assessing my company's environmental, social, and governance risk? Because if they're, if they're judging it harshly, all of a sudden, there is a lot of money that might not be allocated to buying your company, right? And I think that's kind of the, the most powerful, you know, call it like an invisible hand almost, that with so much money tracking ESG, it's financially material to stock prices and to corporate performance if you're on the wrong side of it. That's a much more eloquent way of, of saying what I, what I was, what I agree with it, which is sometimes the biggest influence that is the hardest is financial influence. And we're finally Absolutely. at a place where we're seeing that because 
it's one thing to have social movements, social movements that go through media, that involve people, ground, you know, all of the stuff that we can coalesce around as a society. It's a whole other thing to then see that translate all the way through how a business literally operates at its core, what it is, what it does, how it reaches its customer base and how it takes care of the people that work for it. And I think it's really certainly good, in in my opinion, that now this continued pressure to consider that because we really haven't had that. And and we can kind of talk about the history of this because this this is not new. There have been fun types and, you know, there's been options for many decades, dating back to even the 60s for some of the fun companies I know about. Actually, it almost goes back further. The first kind of stabs at this were from some of these like Quaker groups or other religious groups in the Northeast that actually kind of started integrating this into investing or deploying capital. I mean, without getting too boring into the history back in the late 1800s. And Mm -hmm. it was generally focused on religious values way back when. It kind of evolved then around the 60s. I think probably the Vietnam War was a big flashpoint. Things like Mm -hmm. napalm, the companies that produce napalm, right? Or other harmful chemicals. You started to have a blowback. Just like with everything else in the 60s, as social awareness starts to kind of, you know, move on from its infancy to become inundated throughout the culture. For what this has become today, I would say that the 80s is really kind of the, the genesis of there was a global worldwide movement to divest from South Africa around the apartheid. Mm, And I think that's the first time where financial pressure more so than military or the other things is what ended up spurring the change because so many companies, so many nations refused to do business with the South African government until they came around. And, you know, when you hit in the pocketbook for long enough, things tend to change as people kind of saw what the result of that was, and then, you know, it continues to develop and gain steam. You asked earlier what SRI, socially responsible investing, I'd say that's, you know, the perfect example is apartheid where it's, you know, historically it was about divesting of things you don't believe in, whether that's sin stocks or whether that's oil companies or whether that's anything, it's up to the client. And I think that's what's so powerful about this. It's, we're not, I'm not telling any client what set of values they should believe in. And I think that's a really important thing because sometimes we can rub people the wrong way when we talk about this topic. You know, it's your money. It's your financial future. We're giving you just that extra layer of optionality, if possible, and, and we're still evolving, but if possible to channel their assets into things they care about. I think that that's a good jumping off point to talk about and maybe semi-debunk some of the myths that we know we hear about in this space. And and I think the first and probably the most important one is the idea that uh, ESG-style investments are somehow worse in performance than other types of investments that do not take ESG into account. It's one of those things where, especially as you know, if you work at a financial institution, 
Talking about returns and performance is always a bit tricky. We have some certain guardrails around that, but I would say all of the academic studies that have been done, the preponderance of evidence, as they say, would show over time, you're not sacrificing return to follow an ESG strategy. Companies that thought that align well with ESG, there's no evidence of material underperformance. What's going to be interesting, and I think you know, right now is the perfect time to talk about this. Over the short term, there's opportunity to have a dislocation, right? To have a short-term underperformance. So ESG tends to, now it doesn't always mean excluding oil companies or energy companies, but it tends to be much less invested in most ESG strategies, if not, not invested at all. And you know, oil just went to $110 a barrel yesterday briefly, right? Yeah, energy is the best performing sector this year so far. So there probably will be times for three and six month periods, just like anything else, where the returns are going to be different. But over the long term, over the time horizon where we're usually telling our investors, our clients to think about, there's no real material sign of underperformance or sacrifice associated with following an ESG strategy. Yeah, no, I, that is... Again, so important. And then, you know, the flip side going back to, okay, what should an investor be aware of as you start to consider this? Because it's not, it's not as, as simple as an if A, then B. If A, I feel like I want to do this, then B, we just go right ahead and the dominoes fall and it's done. So let's talk yeah. about maybe some of the, you know, some of those consideration points much of which don't change just because this consideration is now on the table because we're still having to assess yeah. portfolio risk appetite and a lot of the other things that go along with proper you know investment considerations and, and finding the right path forward so what are, what do you think some of the things are that are fundamental to this in particular but then come alongside a lot of the things that we would have to do anyway yeah, that's like you said, a lot of this is just doing what we've been doing forever. And it's just a new way of assessing value and looking at risk. But there also are a lot of things that weren't traditionally done. And I think, and you mentioned it, like when we're looking at time horizons and risk and return and the, the different things that we use to help kind of provide guidance to clients and that we look at for their unique circumstances, they still matter. And this doesn't supersede. I think ESG in particular, it is just an augment to that. It's just a new way of kind of helping that process. And you don't have to be, there's not a binary yes or no around this space. You don't, it's not, I'm ESG or I'm not. There are different levels of integration and there are different levels of, I think that we break, you know, from experience of talking to so many clients and advisors about this, I've kind of learned that most clients fit into one or two camps. The first one, and I, I, it's almost 50-50. The first camp is, I would say, aspirational, where the client's interested. They want, if possible, to either follow an ESG or a faith-based or um, what we call impact strategy. But at the same time, they're not willing to get tax consequences. So the example being, you know, they have a position they've held for a long time. It wouldn't mesh with that strategy. Selling out of it to buy something new could cause, you know, a hefty tax bill. Well, their asp the aspirational client takes some time, right? If they have new money to put to work or if they have some cash on the sidelines, they'd like to invest it this way. 
but they're not going to meaningfully change their investment objectives. For them, it's a best efforts thing, right? And it's an mm -hmm. and thing. It's just another factor to consider for their investments. The conversation is important, presenting options. And sometimes it's a lot more of an art than a science, figuring out the right solutions. The second client type is probably a bit easier. And now it's kind of the more idealistic client where they have some sort of set of values or parameters that almost supersede the things that we do every day already for clients, right? Where they would say, I would be willing to sacrifice return. Whether they have to or not, they would be willing to sacrifice return to not invest in this company they don't believe in, to guide towards a more sustainable future if and when possible. If, if company A has emissions above you know, X amount of scope one carbon emissions, they won't invest in it. And for that client, the things like tax consequences and capital gains and all these other things we think about tend to be barriers that they're not as worried about. And they tend to be fully invested this way. They tend to be a lot more intentional in investing to align with their values. And I think once we figure out where that client is on the spectrum, it's a lot easier to help and it's a lot easier to come up with solutions. But like you said, one of the big problems is it's just there are so many options. The product universe in this space is basically quadrupled. There are multiple levels of intentionality and integration you can do. So today it's still, and this is still evolving. The data is still involving the re reporting and the disclosures. It's still a little bit more of an art than a science. And to that point, I think that it might be helpful to mention categorically some of the I guess groupings is, is yeah. probably the best terminology I can think of, of portfolio types. And I, and, and I know you, I mean, you know, the, the, the Wells Fargo Investment Institute has done a great job of building some of these. So let's talk about kind of some of the, the portfolio type groupings that are out there, because I think that helps people realize even more things that are, are now quantifiable in terms of applying some kind of a set of matrix of how we pick and choose and develop a portfolio. To start at the kind of, you know, internally we call this whole space and our solution for clients who want to invest with their values, we call it vision investing. Mm -hmm. And there are really three pillars of that. There's three different, and sometimes these aren't mutually exclusive. So clients could be in between one or the other, but one would be ESG. And we've talked a lot about that. The, another would be values alignment. And that's not for that client who's looking for general environmental, social, and governance alignment. It's the client who just wants to avoid certain sectors, be it sin stocks, tobacco, alcohol, et cetera, faith-based screens based on you know the United States Council of Catholic Bishops or a Methodist screen or you know, any of those. And there's, there's some really interesting ones that have come up for that. For instance, you know, we had a large endowment for a church that wanted to screen out factory farming and private prisons. And when you think <laughs> about this space, those aren't the first two things that pop up, right? No. Um, and so it's interesting with values alignment, it tends to be more of a negative screening, an opt out rather than an opt in. And then the third pillar is kind of almost the opposite, which is investing with impact, where you're trying to channel your money specifically towards some sort of action you want to create. And that could be a carbon transition type product where 
you're trying to basically get the world towards net zero quicker. And that's a gross, gross oversimplification, but it's a hard space to describe. Or you want to invest directly in some sort of industry where, or type of company where you think they're making an impact and really not just avoiding, not just looking at a mosaic effect, but actively furthering something you believe in. Once we kind of figure out which one of those three, then you can kind of help figure out what's the right strategy for the client, right? Whether it's a combination of products with mutual funds, ETFs, you know, or are they the kind of client who owns single securities and is picking between stocks? It's kind of a process, right? And I think in this space, you start with what the client cares about, what they believe in, where they are on what we would call our vision investing spectrum. Then the next step, once you kind of have those parameters, then we start doing the things as financial advisors or financial services that we do every day for clients that you know about that you do every day for clients. The first step, setting guardrails, then we can do our jobs. And I appreciate you kind of giving those groupings because again, that's a lot of the things that I think come up out there and, and you know, it's hard to even realize, you know, how do, how do you start to, 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 I guess, put things in boxes that are, are manageable and tangible. To me, it's, it's a lot of fun professionally to walk someone through this type of consideration because it does, it goes beyond I think just what is the normal routine, which is not, uh, it it isn't just to do things without a value tilt to it is an exhaustive and very um, in-depth methodology that gets applied. But I think that this, I've, I've just found that a lot of the times when clients do kind of take that, at least that initial first step to say, you know what, I do want to kind of see where I am on that spectrum and start to see if I can take certain steps that might allow me to lean into this values component. I find that that does, you know, it, it, people get more connected to what they're doing in how they're saving, growing money. And, and, I, and I just, I think that you know, that's always a good thing. It's a great point. And I think that there's one study that kind of is almost a call to action for our industry. It's that the Harvard Business Review did a study and they found that clients who invest this way, be it ESG or values aligned or impact investing, have longer holding periods. They, are, they have stickier relationships with their financial advisor. They have basically, you just kind of strengthen the relationship, not only between the client and the advisor, but also if the client believes in it, not just from a personal gain standpoint, but also from their perception of altruism or doing the right thing, they end up better off. Because honestly, for most clients, sometimes they can get in times of volatility or you know, we've seen whether it was the financial crisis or even you know, we're seeing some volatility now, right? Clients can tend to get scared without the right financial advice, without the right financial advisor. And this Harvard Business Review study, while not showing that ESG or this is some sort of panacea, some cure-all, right? But it showed that they're more likely to have longer holding periods. They're more likely to stay invested over time through volatility because there's just a little bit more um, 
trying to think of the best word for it, but almost like dedication to the way they're invested. And yeah, no, that's good. I, I like I quantify it as engagement. You have yeah. additional level of psychological connection to what you're doing, yes. and I think that is that is materially important because you're right. It, if you have a better level, it doesn't have to be understanding because uh, I think a lot of times, you know, investors want to know everything or know as much as possible. And that's, you know, certainly we, we're not trying to create a barrier to not wanting to understand, but this is so much, there's so much to know, but sure, certainly sure. having that, you know, that emotional, that psychological and that value connection, I just see it. it you know, I see it in the clients that I know that I work with that have stepped into this space in some degree, they just, they do better as, as investors, <laughs> which is, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a compliment just, I think, to that additional psychological component that allows you to, you know, stay the course and, and be reminded as to why you've made certain decisions that weren't just based on a, you know, a risk profile per se. Yeah, it's, sure. it's like risk profile plus, and, and it's, it is, it is a fascinating thing to see. And, it, and it's an exciting thing, I think, to, to walk through. There are certainly some things, and I want to kind of touch on this briefly with you. You know, not all, I guess, advisors are as engaged with this uh, as I'm sure we would like them all to be. Sure. Um, so there are certainly some organizations out there that I think uh, might help the public identify and understand and interact with advisors that may specialize more. And I, I hate the word specialize because we got to be careful in, in how that gets thrown around. Yeah, yeah. But certainly, you know, organizations like Green America or USSIF, the Forum for Sustainable and Responsible Investment, there are some places where if, if you know, a consumer is trying to look at or maybe understand and, and get some professionals that have at least, you know, planted their flag in a more substantive way. I think that that's helpful for people to know. So what kind of recommendations? I know I, I mentioned two, and I, I know that those are not the only two. They're just some of the larger ones. Um, are there any other places or if, 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 I guess, if a consumer's trying to understand if an advisor really understands this or specializes, what would you suggest that they consider? You know, I, I had to be careful a little bit about, I, let me answer the question in, in a, dip, a bit of a dip. There are a couple other organizations, right? That yeah. could maybe almost make the client feel more comfortable in this space. There is um, SASB, right? The, yep. And and that's a, a an organization that along with the United Nation Sustainable Development Goals are trying to set guidelines and specific parameters in this space to where things are becoming are going to become more uniform. And I think that's a really important because you mentioned how not every financial advisor, and there's a lot who kind of aren't on board yet with this idea or this space. I don't blame some of them because there's a lot, you know, skepticism is often healthy. If, if you're skeptical to a fault, then maybe that's an issue. But there is room for healthy skepticism here because we're still evolving, right? Mm -hmm. There aren't, not every company discloses the same data, right? And if you yep. look at carbon footprint data, some of it's estimated, some of it's reported and verified. If you look at the, the you know, the some of the things like the regulatory agencies, they haven't yet, in at least the United States, set firm guardrails um, around 
ESG definitions around ESG reporting and ESG data. And so these organizations like the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, SASB, and the United Nations uh, with the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, the goal would be to sort of standardize this more. And that would create less risk for clients because we have this idea of greenwashing that you hear. That's the new term in this space, right? This idea that there is a marketing aim to this, that you want to make clients feel good about investing sustainably or investing with your values, but not really walking the walk. When you look under the hood, you know, whatever used to be, you know, XYZ total return fund is now total return sustainable fund, but they didn't change any of the holdings. (laughs) And that's a real risk. And I would say overall, we're doing our absolute best to navigate these waters and continually evolve and improve. But this space isn't perfect yet. There's still a a ton of room to grow and a ton of room to evolve. Now, I think we've come light years as an industry in the last two years, we've made more progress than we did here in the last 50, but there's still room to grow. Some of the skepticism is healthy, but a lot of the skepticism from five years ago, which was probably fair about product availability, about Mm -hmm. expenses, about all these other things, those are starting to go away as these groups, like you mentioned, the USSIF or SASB or the, you know, the SDGs, things like that, as they start kind of coalescing and we start to agree on what ESG means and we start to agree on how to prevent things like greenwashing, then I think a lot of that skepticism will erode. And the other thing about it, I think a lot of people, when a lot of advisors or a lot of clients, their skepticism is, this is a group, this is a political thing, that this is a group of people who are trying to install values on me that I don't have. And I think that's also looking at this the wrong way, because this is about doing our absolute best to align with that client's belief, not with a set of beliefs we think. Now, sustainability or reducing a carbon footprint or something like that might be the most popular application of this. That might be the thing that clients ask about the most, especially younger generations. But We have, like I said, faith-based, there's faith-based strategies. There are animal welfare strategies. Mm -hmm. There are Islamic strategies. There are across the board, there are options. It it would be a mistake to pigeonhole this as just one thing. That's kind of a good way of, you know, laying out that A, there are options. So number one, if this is something that you're interested in, certainly pursue uh, working hopefully with a, a professional advisor that can help you yeah. apply these types of filters and and help you create something that that fits what you're looking for. I think the other thing is to recognize that, and this is not to say that you know every advisor needs to quote unquote specialize or you know understand everything, but just as you're considering your professional relationships, it's important to understand how how far along an advisor is able to go in working with you on this. Because it's okay to work with somebody who maybe doesn't have to necessarily believe in it all, but if they have a lot of of resources at their disposal to be able to help you professionally, then that's kind of a good framework for understanding and working with somebody. So I think it's just to know that that you know you you have now more available to assess that professional relationship as well and to make sure that the person you're going to work with can help you you know go all the way down the proverbial rabbit hole 
that's as important as finding those underlying investments that fit the strategy you ultimately want to deploy. Sure, absolutely. Man, I, I know we could talk for probably hours on end <laughs> at this. Let's just kind of bring it home for what would you say are some opportunities out there or, or, or things that you would want somebody to be encouraged to do if this is something that they're, they're, they've been thinking about for a while, but maybe they don't know what steps to take? What would be some steps that you would encourage somebody to, to just take? I would just say, have the conversation with your financial advisor. Selfishly, we have a great new piece that just came out on vision investing that's you know available through our website that kind of walks through this whole space. And from an education standpoint, have a conversation with your advisor and be very selective about making sure that you're investing in a way that you feel comfortable with, both from the normal things we do in the financial services industry, risk, return, time horizon but also that it's the right level of values alignment or integration, the right level of ESG. Be methodical. Make There are a lot of new options out there. Probably too many new options have, appro- have come out lately with kind of, which kind of confuses things. Yeah. But be methodical with it and just keep an open mind. And, and the other thing I would say is make sure that as a client, as an investor, just be aware that this is one of those things where it's still evolving and there are going to be changes. There is going to be a backlash like there is for almost everything. And we're already seeing it now because like you mentioned, the, some advisors aren't picking it up or there is you know, a healthy dose of skepticism sometimes around this space. There are going to be roadblocks and there's going to be ups and downs, but the overall path, it seems very clear. This is only going to get more ingrained into the financial services industry and the investing world. Be patient, take the information as it comes. And, you know, I think that within five years, this is just going to be part of investing. You won't have to break out ESG and break out, you know, aligning with your values. This will just be ingrained into the investing world. Until we get there, it's important to be methodical and thoughtful about how we're approaching this situation. I don't think I could have wrapped it up better. I appreciate that. So how can somebody get a hold of you if they needed to contact you for any reason? We usually would have a conversations through our financial advisors, but if you can go to, you know, wellsfargoadvisors.com, you can find information, uh, the vision investing piece and other great uh, advice and guidance from the Wells Fargo Investment Institute and our team of strategists. Yeah, I think you just start there. Awesome. I appreciate it. I go there frequently so I can attest to what you're saying. It is uh, incredible information. Really, really great. So thank you, Dan, for your time today. This was a great conversation. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me so much and giving me the opportunity. Uh, It's a lot of fun, man. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. information provided in this podcast is not intended as specific tax or legal advice and may not be relied upon for purposes of avoiding any federal tax penalties. The Haney Company, its employees and representatives are not authorized to give tax or legal advice. Individuals are encouraged to seek advice from their own tax or legal counsel. Individuals involved in the estate planning process should work with an estate planning team, including their own personal legal or tax counsel.
The information provided here does not constitute personal financial advice, but is meant as the conveyance of information for educational purposes only. All investing involves risk, including the risk of loss. Past performance is not indicatory of future returns. Guarantees are backed by the claims-paying ability of the insurer. Brian Haney is a registered representative of Coastal Equities Incorporated and an investment advisory representative of Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated. Investment advisory services are offered through Coastal Investment Advisors Incorporated, and securities are offered through Coastal Equities Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC.